0: Well, it is a happy birthday Sunday for Genesis Church. What a great day. Um, Man, 17 years ago, I can tell you what I was doing 17 years ago right now. I was freaking out that we were actually going to do this thing, right? Uh, Standing on a stage over at Eureka High School. um, We actually had a decent crowd of like 60 people. Um, The next week we had like 35, but because a whole bunch of our friends and family and former church people came the first week, but we We started Genesis. And here we are 17 years later, and I can tell you that that I am so thankful for the journey the Lord has for us. And I'm mainly thankful because we have seen the grace of God at every step. We've seen God do do some just crazy, beautiful things for our church and the lives of people. And I'm thankful because I got to take this journey with you. We love you all and are so thankful to be in a community of faith that um, holds Jesus high and that is serving our city and planting churches and doing these things together. And so we love you, we're for you, and, and what a great day. Just it, it's, a, it's a celebration day. so let's, let's just thank the Lord. Let's give Him a praise. Uh, even a, you, you might shout out a hallelujah right now for your, your church and God's faithfulness here. What, what a cool place. Um, we're in this series that, that we're calling Jesus Is. Um, we, we've talked about the fact that For so many people who claim the name of Jesus, who talk about being a follower of Jesus, you start asking the the core questions about what you actually believe. And so many people don't know what they believe about Jesus. Um, Add to that there are so many ideas about Jesus in our culture, uh, in different religious groups. I mean, they will show up at your doorstep with a bicycle and a tie on, want to tell you who Jesus is. And if we're not prepared, we will end up with, with a Jesus who cannot save us. Um, there's a story. Uh, now it, you know how internet stories go. I don't know if it's true or not, but the story says that there was a statue of Jesus in India somewhere, and uh, what happened is that the, the statue of Jesus, you know, on the cross began to have water pour out of the feet of Jesus. And of course, you know what people people start looking at stuff like that. They're like, oh. This is a miracle. This is God with us. This is holy water. This is like Moses striking the rock. In the and so the rock and the spring comes out. And so they start, you know, taking the water and they're bathing in it. And some people are even drinking of it. Come to find out, the water actually came from a broken sewer pipe. Yeah, that, that Jesus ain't going to save you, bro. Just so you know, okay? Uh, and, and, and that becomes kind of the problem is that Jesus is still really popular in our culture popular in our world, there's all kinds of ideas about Jesus. And what we do is we we tend to shape Jesus in an image that fits our ideas, our our desires, our way of living, Uh, what we want a Jesus who just pats us on the back, gives us a hug, makes us feel better about ourselves, and we will start shifting and following and creating a Jesus in our own minds. And what we need to do is run to the Bible, run to the scriptures and open the Bible says Who was this guy? Who is this guy? What do we know about who he really was and why does it matter? You see, Christianity, if if you are here and you're a follower of Jesus, I'm going to tell you the essence of what that means right now. If you're new and you're just checking this thing out, let me explain Christianity. Christianity is not like we are not here this morning to give you a new way to live. Did Did you know that? Now, now, if if you get Jesus, it will change your life. But we're not here to give you a a system of life where if you will follow these rules and live this way, God will love you. And if you don't follow or if you don't keep these rules and if you do these things, we're not here to give you a a, a system, a way to live. We are not here to give you a set of religious rituals. That is not the essence of Christianity. Most other religions, that's what they're offering you, a, a, a way to live, a system of rituals, a way for you to build a path to God. Christianity is not offering that. Christianity is not offering some kind of weird cleansing by walking through certain rites and passages and certain uh, spiritual experiences. In fact, to be honest with you, we're not here this morning primarily to offer you a religious spiritual experience. We're here to do one thing. Christianity is about one thing Christianity is offering you a person, it is offering you Jesus Christ. It is asking you to lift your chin and look at him. It is asking you to pay attention to his person, his work, the things that he did, and that um, aspect, this person who came in history, it is asking you to pay attention so that you will come to the point where you will repent, turn from your religious rituals, your efforts to save yourself, your good works, your sin, to turn from all of that and turn to this person as the source of your hope, as the point of your redemption, as your God. And here's why this is so important. I'm just, I'm t- I, I echoed this in my class this week. I'm going to tell you something that is true. Whatever your God is, you at every moment of your life, whatever is ultimate, whatever is supreme, whatever is is central to who you are, whatever your God is, you at every moment of your life are moving towards your God. And so what happens is we we take Jesus, but we kind of shift and twist the story and shift the, the, the person of Jesus to fit what our ultimate God is, what our ultimate desire is. So we end up with a, a Jesus who is, you know, I, I mean, it's all over. We Health and wealth gospel, a Jesus who wants to make you rich, famous, powerful. A, a Jesus who is a political hero. There is a lot being written right now about Jesus the zealot in, in the theological world. And, and what that writing is coming out of this moment where we think our, salvation is political so much of the church has chosen sides and has recast jesus to fit their side and so we have jesus the zealot who's the warrior who overthrows evil governments and and it's primary about politics we'll end up with jesus who is the sympathetic caring person but doesn't ever, ever have anything cross to say to anybody who isn't prophetic We end up with the meek and mild Jesus, but not the powerful prophet Jesus. We end up with the uh, 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 saving Jesus who, who, who will save you from your hardship and your oppression, but doesn't ever actually call you to repentance. And all the, like if we get the wrong Jesus, it's just like that water. It's coming off the feet of a false idea and it is nothing but sewage. It won't save you. Yet if you find the true Christ... If you see his beauty... And you begin to be drawn to who he is in the scriptures and as he's revealed in this whole story of the Bible and you begin to embrace this Jesus and you trust in who he has claimed to be and what the Bible says about him and you understand that God is making himself known through this person of Jesus. The true and living God has come to us in this person of Jesus Christ. And and we hear Jesus' words where he says, "If, if you want to know what the Father looks like, if you want to understand what God is like, look at me. If you've seen me, you've seeing the Father and we begin to understand that and all of a sudden we begin to embrace the authentic Jesus, the true Jesus who is God in the flesh, who is both powerful prophet and humble servant, who is king and sacrifice when we start reading the gospels and understanding the whole scripture of, uh, the, the whole story of scripture and looking at the true Jesus, what happens is we embrace the true and living God, you get that? And what happens is whatever your God is, you in your life will begin moving towards the object of your worship when Christ, the true fountain of living water, is your God. You will by, just by nature begin to move towards the object of your worship and affection and Christ will transform you for his glory. But you got to have the right Jesus, not one of your own making, not one of. Our, we got to get it from Scripture, and that's what this series is about. Just saying, listen, we're going to look at Jesus. We're going to talk about the different aspects of how the Bible shows us who He is and what His ministry and His mission and His person. All this sort of stuff was about. And today we're talking about Jesus as the Messiah. We just sang it. But what does that mean? How do we interact with this? And when you think about Jesus, like, like if you if you think about like think about this, what is Jesus' name? And we would probably answer, well, his name is Jesus Christ. That's what we call him, right? Like, Jesus Christ. Like, that's his last name. Like, he's Jesus Christ. His earthly dad was Joseph Christ. Mary Christ was his mom. <laughs> Had James and Jude Christ, his brothers. You know, I mean, you know, was the, he, he was part of the Christ family carpentry business. Had a big sign, Christ and sons. You know, I mean... It, Christ is, that's what we think, Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we use his name when we talk about him in church. We use his name when we hit our thumb with a hammer. We use it in both places, and we're not sure quite what we're saying. Christ is not a name. It is a title. The name Jesus means our God saves, Yahweh, the God of the Bible saves. That's, that's what his name means. It, he got his name, Jesus, when the angel visited Joseph To tell Joseph that, hey, I know you heard that your fiancé is pregnant and you're flipping out. But, bro, his story's true. Her story's true. She did not hook up with some other guy. She really is pregnant by the power of God to give birth to the Messiah. Hey, Joseph, you get to be his earthly dad. And as the earthly dad of the Son of God, the angel says, I want you to name him Jesus. Yahweh saves. Our God saves. That's his name. But Christ is a title. It comes from a Greek word. So if you, to understand why we get this, just a real quick under, explanation. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, the ancient language of the Jewish people. But the New Testament is written in what is called common Greek. It is like the whole New Testament was originally penned in Greek because the whole world spoke Greek by this time in history. The whole Western world, uh, Middle East, uh, Europe, all the way up into like Iraq and, and parts of Asia spoke Greek because of the existence of the Greek Empire. It was the language of commerce in the world. And so if you wrote something in Greek, you could send then copies and send that everywhere in the world and everybody would understand what was written. If you wrote in Hebrew, only Jewish people in the Middle East would understand it. So the whole New Testament, God inspired the authors to write in Greek. And, and so they call him Christos, Christ, when you read it in the New Testament. But the word Christ is a title that is a translation of The Hebrew word, the Old Testament word, Messiah. It is a declaration that when you say Jesus Christ, you are declaring that Jesus is the Messiah. And now we've got this whole crazy story because that word is connected to a million things in the Bible. That title, Messiah, that title, Christ, is connected to the whole broad story. Of scripture, And that's my goal this morning is to, to show you Jesus as the Messiah. To help you understand that this man who lived in history was actually the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecies and pictures and images and promises that show up way before he lived. And that this man Jesus steps into history and his own, his own message is, I am the one you've been waiting for. But also these, these gospel writers, these people who wrote the first four books of our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These four guys are giving us the life story of Jesus. Like if you're new to the Bible, if you've not read the Bible and you want to start somewhere, you start reading these four books. Don't start at the beginning. Beginning's beginning is a good place, but the best place to start reading the Bible, and if you've never read the four gospels, I would challenge you to start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because you have these four four men who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, are passing on eyewitness stories about the person who lived in history whose name was Jesus. But every one of these authors are doing something for us. They're reminding us that there is thousands of years of of this nation and their God and the promises that came and the prophecies that came because of him. And they're all looking at Jesus going, there he is is. Jesus didn't just pop up as some dude. There is a whole grand, glorious story in the Bible, and he is the culmination of that story. Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. And my goal this morning is to help you understand that, to help you see that Jesus is more than just like, like if you tell my story, if I got a biography written about me, and it's not going to happen, But if a biography was written about me, most biographies begin with, you know, so-and-so was born here. And, you know, so the story would be about me being born in Austin, Texas, right? Hook'em horns. Uh, Born in Austin, Texas, St. David Hospital uh, in the summer of 1966. And some of you are like, oh, my gosh, you're that old. Yes, I am. Get over it. But, but, But that's where my story would begin. But when the gospel writers start writing the story of Jesus, they don't start with, Well, he was born in Bethlehem one afternoon. His parents, like nine months before, were excited. But then this is where he started. The the writers of the Gospels want to tell us that the story of Jesus begins long before there's a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. The story of Jesus begins, in fact, John's Gospel starts with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Like John says, let me tell you where the story of Jesus begins. It begins before creation, because he is the creator. And the whole Old Testament starts telling this beautiful story of God's relationship with one single nation, this nation of Israel, that God starts by calling their ancestor Abraham and makes a ton of promises to Abraham. And, and he enters what's called a covenant, a relationship with him. And then what happens is for the next 15 to 1800 years, God takes that man and his descendants, and they become a nation of people. God eventually rescues them from slavery, keeping his promises. He gives them this place that we call the promised land. And and we have this great story of God's relationship with this nation. But the whole story from day one is that God is faithful, but these people are a hot mess. They are like, they are an abject failure when it comes to keeping their end of the bargain. And what happens is that the whole story, every word of the Old Testament, the, this narrative that it, it, it all ends like, for it, the, the writing of the Old Testament begins about 1,000 years before the coming of Jesus. Actually, about 1,400 years before the coming of Jesus and ends 400 years before Jesus comes. So you have a 1,000 years of the history being recorded by the author's Yet, every word here is pointing to a reality that is beyond them to a single person. And, and, and there are pictures and promises and prophecies. Let me explain what I mean. There are, are promises. And so what happens in God's covenant with this guy named Abraham? He makes a ton of promises. But what we find in, in the story is that Those promises are made to Abraham, they are ultimately made to this nation, but ultimately the promises are primarily made to Jesus. That he is the one who becomes both the receiver of God's promises, he becomes, we'll talk about this later in the series, he becomes true Israel, who all the promises are true in him. And he is the one who also brings the truthfulness of the promises out as we see God's faithfulness in the person of Jesus. As he heals and he loves and he cares and he forgives sins. All the promises that God makes in the Old Testament all of a sudden are true and yes in Jesus Christ. There are pictures. And I'm just telling you they are everywhere. There are these pictures in the Old Testament of God doing something in this nation among these people. And embedded in the story. There is this, this snapshot, this beautiful picture of something that you and I can now look through the lens of knowing who Jesus is as the Messiah and look back at that moment and go, oh my gosh, this is not just about that moment. This is about Jesus. Let me give you one example. There's this moment in history where God rescues his people. And he gives them this celebration called the Passover. He is going to judge Egypt who has enslaved God's people. And while he judges them, he's going to set his people free. And the last night, God says, I'm going to judge Egypt in such a way that he's going to take the life of every firstborn in Egypt. Yet he will pass over in grace and mercy. He will pass over any door where they honor the Passover. And what that means is they're to take a spotless, perfect lamb. They're to sacrifice that lamb. And all of a sudden, if you, like those of us who, who've grown up in church, like, oh, I, I hear it, the, the spotless, perfect lamb who was sacrificed. And they were to take a bowl. Now, I need the, those of you who grew up Catholic, watch this. See if you can help me just for a minute, Okay. That they were to take a bowl of the blood of the lamb. That's kind of gross. They're going to take this hyssop branch, this scrawny little branch. And what God is doing here is He is painting a picture that goes beyond this moment. He is rescuing them from slavery through the blood of a lamb. And watch what they do with the lamb. They take that hyssop branch and they hold this bowl, and, and they were supposed to put it on the two sides. And the top of the doorpost. You know how blood here, blood here, blood here, the blood that is dripping is now at your feet. What did I just do? Do you see it? I mean, a lot of you grew up Catholic doing this. And you think, this started with the Catholic Church? No, it started with the Passover. You see God painting a picture? If the people who did it didn't quite get it. They just have a sacrificial lamb that covers them for that night. and They are free. They don't lose their loved one when God's judgment comes. They are passed over. You get the whole picture. I can't tell you. Like, I could preach this sermon for 10 hours today and start pointing you to all the places where this story right here is beautiful, but there is embedded in this story, this moment, a beautiful picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. And the New Testament authors know that. They tell us that this is what it's all about. And there are prophecies. There are promises. There are pictures. There are prophecies where people literally start saying very specific things. And what we have in the, the Old Testament, between 1,400 years and 400 years before the coming of Christ, we have the description of a solitary human life. The very first picture happens in Genesis 3, right after Adam and Eve choose to rebel and sin against God. And God gives a promise of a single seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And now we're looking, who is that seed? In the Old, the Old Testament, every king, every leader, every ruler who was born, you kind of are going, is this the seed? Is this the one who crushes the serpent's head? But in every case, the serpent gets him. And we spend the whole Old Testament looking for the seed. But there are these predictions of that one person. and, And it starts growing. And what happens is that the Old Testament prophets begin to lay out a biographical sketch of a single human life. And if we start pulling the details, there is as many as 324 different passages in the Old Testament that explain like, like, if we start pulling them together, we have things like where this person would, would be born, the situation around their birth, what is going on in the world around their birth. We're going to find out this person uh, is born of a virgin. Like, that numbers it down quite a bit, Right? We find out that this person, when they are born, immediately is going to be recognized as a king. That this person would then have to flee, uh, just like Israel, to Egypt. We find out that this person will grow up a normal life, and nobody will really know who he is. But eventually, he will have a ministry. We have the description of his ministry that includes the type of interaction, the type of followers he would have, the fact that he would heal, the fact that he would, he would cure diseases, the fact that he would heal blindness. One of the interesting things about the Bible story is that there are all kinds of healings in the Old Testament, including people raised from the dead. But nobody in the whole Old Testament story ever heals somebody from being blind. When Jesus does it, it should have been a giant light that went, that's him! He's the only one who can make blind eyes see. And and, and so then we have the details of what his arrest will look like, Uh, the fact that he would be sold out by one of his friends for 30 pieces of silver, and all this stuff show up in the biblical record in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus is born. And now Jesus shows up, and what the story does is it shows us how these 324 different prophecies actually all come together in the life of one individual. And the New Testament writers are going, is, see, this is him. And in the life of Jesus, you have this beautiful story of his ministry, this wonderful interaction with people, the fact that the religious leaders and some who were in power really got were getting sideways with him because he was a threat to their political power and situation. He was a threat to Rome because there were claims of his being the true king of the Jews, which was a title, and we're going to talk more about this next week, so I'm not going to get too much into this, but it was a title that made very specific Roman rulers, including one during the life of Jesus who wanted to be called king of the Jews, very nervous. And, and he then dies the death on the cross, but three days later he rises again. And you end up with these four gospels helping us understand the beautiful story. And there's this one moment in the story. Now, here's what happened, okay, in terms of life of Genesis Church. This sermon was supposed to be two weeks ago. I chose the text because I believed wholeheartedly that I was going to be preaching this sermon on Palm Sunday. That I'd be able to point to the palm branches to talk about this on the day that we were supposed to celebrate it. And then the curse of the fall got up to me and I got strapped and had to miss two weeks ago. But, but what I want us to do is I want you to grab your Bible. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 because I want us to, to look at the beauty of the story. This is... This is the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday. It is the week before Easter. Uh, what is happening at the moment of this text in Matthew chapter 21, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, grab one. Uh, there are baskets. We would love for you to have one of those Bibles. Read along with us. Find it in your app, wherever you're at. In uh, this text will be on page 916 in one of our Bibles. And um, if, you, if you grab one of those Bibles, you don't have a Bible that's your own, we would love to give that to you today as a gift. Take that and read it and start reading the Gospels, all right? But this Matthew, who is one of Jesus' 12 best buds, he's one of Jesus' 12 followers, is writing this story. But this story is echoed in all the Gospels again. It is the Sunday before what will be the the friday where jesus dies and the sunday jesus rises again and what is going on in jerusalem is that jerusalem is about we're we're a few days out from the passover now what was happening therefore was that people were coming from all over the the, the western or the mediterranean world some of them traveling on boats from other countries like rome and like greece and like persia but but Jews from the mid, like the Middle East were, were like hanging out with their families and traveling with their their villages. They were all coming into town. The population of Jerusalem is going to double, triple, quadruple in the number of people in town. As they are coming, they are singing together Psalms one twenty through Psalm. Uh, It's like 134, which are called the Psalms of Ascent. They're singing these songs that are in their ancient hymn book. And every step of the way, uh, as they're moving towards, they sing these songs over. So people are singing. Some of them are songs of hope in the midst of devastation. Where are you, O Lord? Why have you waited so long? Others are joyful hope of walking into the presence of God in the temple. They're singing these songs together together. And Jesus is now going to enter Jerusalem as the city is starting to swell with people getting ready for the Passover. There are rumors and people, like there are tons of people who are at At present on days where Jesus did ministry. Like when he's feeding 5,000 people, there are people who are coming to Jerusalem who were there that day. When Jesus is walking through different villages around Galilee and he's laying hands on them and the sick are healed and the dead are are raised. And the blind can see. There are people who saw this and they're coming. And there's this wonder, is this the guy? Is this the Messiah? And so what we're going to see in the story is that Jesus sets up the moment by asking for a donkey. It's not the way a king should enter the city. He should enter the city on a big white horse. If this is a political campaign that says, I'm going to gather a following, he chose the wrong animal. Yet we're even going to see here that this was prophesied. But he enters the city and something crazy happens. And I want us to look at that together. Matthew chapter 21, because what is happening is that the crowd is doing two things. So so let me just tee it up for you. Number one, they are looking at Jesus and going, there he is. That's him. This is our Messiah. And they at the same time are recasting Jesus in the image of the Messiah they want. And it will lead to the fact that five days later, the same crowd will be shouting, crucify him. There he is. But when he doesn't do it the way they want him to do it, when he's not the political king who overthrows Rome, they're then going, nope, we're not in. We're out. So on Sunday, they are believing and they're going, this is Jesus. But but the gospel writers want us to say, no, the crowd was right here. They were wrong later. They were right here so here's what happens. Look at this. Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse one. When they drew near to J- Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, that's just a small village uh, on the side of this mountain, little, little hill on the other side of the, the gates of Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill, catch that word, catch this phrase, This because we're going to come back to this quite a bit in just a minute. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted uh, on a uh, donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now, now let me tell you a little bit of something about how you read your, especially New Testament, Okay? Do you notice in your scripture, now hopefully you've got a Bible up in front of you, do you notice how that verse, this verse here, verse uh, five and six, are are set apart a little bit there? They're indented, they're written more like poetry, something like that, do you you notice that? Does Does your Bible in front of you have that there, like that? Here's what's going on, translators are trying to help us translators are trying to help us see something in the new testament not the old in the new testament most of the time when you come across a passage that is indented like this the translators are trying to help you see that this is actually a direct quote from the old testament in this case it's from the prophet Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 It's literally a quote. So this is just a little helpful Bible reading tip. You're reading in the New Testament, and you come across a passage where it's indented. You go, oh, I probably need to look down at the bottom page. This is a quote from something in the Old Testament, and and there's something going on connecting the Old Testament story and God unveiling his story of his mercy and grace in the Old Testament to the story in the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. That's just anywhere in the New Testament. That's what's happening here. Uh, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Then Jesus went and did as uh, Jesus had directed. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So no saddle. They're just going to throw coats over top of them. Here comes Jesus. He starts riding through the city. Verse 7, verse uh, 7. uh, I'm sorry, verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks, so they're taking off their, 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 their over, their, their like, not, not, not like a winter coat, but their jacket they would, they would kind of wrap around them, their, their shawl kind of thing. And now they're throwing these on the ground so that the donkey can walk over it, poop on it. Like, like this, is, this is a sign of humility of the entrance of somebody. They throw their cloaks on, and then... Uh, Others cut branches from the trees, from uh, literally palm trees that are around there. And they began to pull those and throw them on the street in front of Jesus and spread them on the road. And the crowd that went before uh, him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus of Nazareth from Galilee. Hosanna to the Son of David, verse 9. Hosanna literally means, God, is it time? Will you please? It is a cry. God, please save us. To the Son of David. Now, now if we've read the Bible, we know Jesus is not the Son of David. He's the Son of God. He's, He's the Son of Joseph and Mary, earthly. Son of David, again, is a title that is pointing to this Messiah. This one person that was promised that is going to be in the line of David, the great king. It is a title given to the one who is the fulfillment of all that was promised. See, the word Messiah, when we talk about Messiah, when we talk about Christ, that word literally means anointed one. One who is anointed by God, but usually you have, you have all kinds of anointed people in the Old Testament. Kings would be anointed before their coronation. Uh, priests would be anointed as they were preparing to go do their duties in the temple and stand before the people, uh, before God on behalf of the people. You even had some stories of prophets and other people who had moments where God anointed. And the anointing was a picture of the Holy Spirit coming on people to fulfill one specific task most of the time. Now, a lot of these anointed people, they're anointed in the Old Testament. Uh, there is beauty and grace and, and amazing stories in their life. Yet, these anointed people are really broken, and they are not the one. Uh, and we see that very quickly in their life. Yet, God uses them in glorious, beautiful ways. And we, too, should be crying out, God, anoint us with your spirit. Fill us uh, with your spirit so that we can fulfill the task that God has given us. Yet... In all these anointings, in all these images, in all these pictures, in all these leaders, the prophets begin to say there is going to be one person who is anointed in a different way. That anointing is going to flow really from himself. He is going to be sent by God, but he is going to be God among us. He is going to come as a king and as a sacrifice. I mean, all these pictures that show up in the Bible for this anointed one. And, and so this anointed one that they've been waiting for was the promise of this, this king who would usher in God's kingdom and fulfill all that God had promised And here it is, Palm Sunday. And what these people are literally doing is they're looking at Jesus riding in on a colt. They're throwing branches and their coats in front of him and they're crying out, Hosanna, our God, please save us. And then they're looking at Jesus saying, because you are the son of David, you are him. You are, it's this one moment. Here's the one moment in the Bible, in the story of Jesus where the whole nation goes, you are the one we've been waiting for. You are the promised one. But the problem is that they had recast what he was supposed to be so that when he didn't fit their desires, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted not a a, a humble... Servant riding on a donkey. They wanted a powerful leader riding on a white horse. They didn't get the mixed metaphor. They didn't understand that the donkey was saying something about the type of kingdom that was coming. And so while they threw their branches on, they missed. What was really being proclaimed by Christ? Because see, as you read the Old Testament and you read these, you have these two images that kind of run side by side in the promises of a Messiah. Number one are the kingly promises of this great king who would usher in God's kingdom, who would bring justice and righteousness and goodness to the kingdom. In other words, when, the, when, when, when this king shows up, we're going to see what it looks like for God to rightly rule in the world. But there are also all these pictures and promises and prophecies of a humble servant who suffers. And what they had, their, their, their biblical exegesis in the first century, they had separated those into e- either two people. They, they may have ignored Isaiah 53 that we talked about last week. Or they said it's the nation that suffers, and it's the king who's going to solve it. They come with all kinds of ways to interpret these passages that that left them with just this great king, white horse, overthrow Rome, make Israel great, as the hope. And five days later, when Rome gets Jesus and he doesn't bow his neck and take on Pilate, the same people are standing at, at this the front of this palace where Jesus' trial is held. And we talked about this last week, hence this sermon was supposed to come before. We talked about this last week, that this same crowd is now standing shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Which is still Jesus becoming everything that was promised. He is the Isaiah 53 slaughtered lamb. He is also the true king. But that's what's going on. And what what happens is you read the story. You read the story of the Bible. There are all these pictures and promises and prophecies. And, and, And the place where this is most clear for us, I just love it, is in the book of Matthew. So Matthew was a Jew who kind of didn't buy into the nationalism. He actually went the other way. He became a tax collector, which means he was rooting for the bad guys. He was kind of in cahoots with Rome and collecting taxes for Rome. So he was despised and hated by Jewish people, but then Christ called him and he left his tax booth, followed Jesus. The transformation of Jesus over three years that uh, was real in his life, and then he was there. He was among those who abandoned Jesus on the night he was arrested and tried. He was one of the, the, the guys who on the Friday morning when Jesus was crucified should have been there and wasn't. He is then among the 12 when he is in the room where the risen Christ walks into the room. And now he joins this band of people who are giving their lives, preaching Christ, going all over the world, telling people about Jesus. And telling them that, that our Messiah did come, Jesus is him, and he is proclaiming this. And probably as he got near the end of his life, he realized that if he didn't write down his story, it was going to be lost. We needed these, these eyewitnesses to record for us the story So it was passed on directly from them and not like third, fourth, or fifth generation. And so he begins to write it down. But Matthew grew up, he was a Jewish guy, and he wrote a Jewish gospel. The the gospel of Matthew was written by a Jewish man to convince Jewish people, his Jewish countrymen and his fellow, like the people who shared his background, his heritage, his ethnicity, his language, his story, like his whole, whole heritage he was writing to these sorts of people to convince them that Jesus was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah that for hundreds and hundreds of years they and their ancestors had been waiting for. These promises come into the fact that for the last... Seven centuries, Israel has been under different rulers and kings. They have never been free. They've been under the Babylonian Empire. They've been under the Persian Empire. They've been under the Greek Empire. They've been under the Seleucid Empire. They've been under the Tullivan Empire. They've been under the Roman Empire. They were never free. They had been longing for this moment where a king would cast off this empire and make them the sitting rulers. And, but, but see, here's the problem with their view. It's the problem with a political Messiah that they didn't see, Israel did not see the fact that both their story and the different kings that they had and the story of the nations who conquered other nations around them kept proving. Because every time there's a new ruler, we stand up and go, this is the day! New beginning. It's all right. We having that old horrible ruler is gone, right? Like we do this every four or eight years. That old horrible ruler. We thought he was going to make it happen. We thought everything was going to be better, and then it wasn't because we had a sinful ruler ruling sinful people, and that never changes. Christ came to do something radically different. He didn't, his, his messiahship was not, we're gonna overthrow Rome and make Israel the sitting superpower. That sort of king would step into the same problem. We needed somebody who would rule us. And Matthew is writing to Jewish people going, the messiah you hoped for is not really what the Bible promised. But the messiah you need was my buddy. Let me tell you about them. And one of the beautiful things that Matthew does, love it, over 30 different times in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew pauses and says, let me connect the dots for you. Let me show you a passage, a story, a picture from the Old Testament and remind you that Jesus is the full, beautiful fulfillment of everything that prophecy that picture that promise was all about does it over 30 different times and he uses this language do you still have your bible open look at it again look just just look at with your eyes at verse four this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying that's matthew's favorite phrase the Gospel of Matthew, that's his favorite phrase. He over and over again is going to say, here's what Jesus did. He healed these people. He did these miracles. He did this this afternoon. And let me explain. This happened to fulfill what the prophet, and then he's going to quote an Old Testament text, an Old Testament moment. He's going to help us see how Jesus is the embodiment of everything the Old Testament was hoping for and promising. Okay? You get that? You, you following me? In fact, here's what I want to do. This is going to happen really fast. I'm going to blow through these, but I'm going to show you nine of these real fast. Okay? Okay? Nine of these, real fast, moments where, where it's nine out of over 30 where Matthew says, let me tell you about Jesus. Here's what happened in his life. Let's connect the dots. This was promised. This was prophesied. He's, he's the guy. He, he is our Messiah. He is the one we've been waiting for. Here it is. Are you ready? Uh, number one, we, we have the story of a virgin-born king. Matthew 1, through tw- chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 uh, says, She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. This is the text I was referring earlier, where the angel is speaking to uh, uh, Joseph. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And this took place. Do you see it? To fulfill. What the Lord has spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And if you were looking down in your little Bible notes, you would see this last verse, uh, the, the virgin will conceive and bear a son is a quote of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where we have the introduction of a birth of a child who is a sign for the nations. In chapter 9, we were told that that's, that child is the king of whose kingdom there will be no end. A virgin-born baby will be a king whose kingdom will never end. That's what uh, Matthew quotes this. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 tell us uh, where Jesus was going to be born, the birthplace. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, the the magi, the wise men have come through, and they want to know where's the Messiah supposed to be born. This is what happened. Herod the king heard this. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Do you see it there? So it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, who from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. This is in a section of the Old Testament prophet Micah, where Micah gives a very broad and beautiful Picture of this coming king, and then Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, and we grow up like we like if you're, you have Christian background, you know Bethlehem. It's Christmas, right? We that's where where Jesus, but Bethlehem doesn't make sense. Bethlehem's a little nothing town. Beth, Bethlehem's you know it's kind of like being born in Dittmer. anybody know where Ditmer is? If you don't, don't worry about it. Nobody else in America knows where Dittmer is either. I laugh at Ditmer. There's a dittmer Catawissa road. I drove it a couple times. It, it does not start in Ditmer and end in Catawissa. I, I, I don't understand that. Like, Dittmer's just a small, like, like nothing. Ta- that's what Bethlehem, Bethlehem is just a small, rural shepherding village. All it is. Yet, I, Micah says that's where the Messiah will be born. Guess where Jesus was born? Born in Bethlehem. I mean, it, he wasn't just born there. It took the greed of the Roman emperor to issue a decree for a census to cause Joseph's earthly parents to have to go there. He's born in Bethlehem. People will say, well, well, what really happened was that Jesus tried to orchestrate the events of his life so that he fit the description. Yeah, how many of y'all chose where you were born? Like, I did not send my mom a text from the inside a room going, I think I'd like to be born in Texas. Yeah, We don't do that. You don't choose that. All right, number three. Jesus, like Israel, would come out of Egypt. Matthew two fourteen fifteen 15 tells us when, when Herod was killing babies, this is what Mary and Joseph had to do. And he, uh, he, meaning Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, remained there until <coughs> the death of Herod. This was fulfilled what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Here he is quoting uh, the story of the Exodus is the reference. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 is the quote. He is quoting an Old Testament prophet written 800 years before Jesus about Jesus being true Israel who comes out of Egypt. Number four, John the Baptist would prepare the way. Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 to 3 says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Isaiah is predicting that before the Messiah comes, there will be a precursor, a, a prophet who will come to say, he's here. Let's get ready. And that's exactly what happened in the ministry of John the Baptist. And so we see that this is part of it. Number five, he would minister in Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. This is, these are little towns that are around the Sea of Galilee. By the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Do you see it again? might be fulfilled the land of zebulun and the land of naphtali the way of the sea beyond the jordan galilee of galilee's the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and for those who dwelling in the region the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. isaiah is, is picturing the, this king who comes But his emergence will not happen in Jerusalem, it will happen in this region called Galilee. This is where Jesus grew up, it's where Jesus started his ministry, it's where Jesus fed the 5,000, it's where Jesus did most of his healings, and here we see that this was prophesied. It was predicted. Uh, Number number six, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's a dot over an I, not an iota, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now here's, we're coming back to this as a whole sermon, but here's what Jesus is saying. 613 laws in the Old Testament are there to show you that you can't keep them, and then to look to Jesus who kept them all. He fulfilled the law. I don't. Uh, number number six, uh, or number seven, Jesus took away diseases and healed them. And I'm just going to reference. I've got to keep moving. I'm going to be here forever. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, tell us about Jesus' healing ministry. And in, in verse 17 says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is a quote from Isaiah 53 that we preached on Easter Sunday last week that Christ, uh, ministry would include the healing of diseases, but as he healed, it would mean that it would push him closer to the cross. And so he healed our diseases. Number eight, Jesus is the servant of the Lord. Matthew 12, verses 17 through 21. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the gentiles will hope now just real quick i got to pause here and explain what's happening when when matthew says he's the servant see what happens in isaiah's writing isaiah is this long prophetic book in the old testament and the first part of the prophecy begins to picture this king born of a virgin who his kingdom will have no end but you get in the second half of the book and israel is suffering they're under persecution they're struggling and Isaiah begins to tell us four major passages starting in Isaiah, like the Isaiah 42 and going through Isaiah 53. Four major passages where as God is speaking through Isaiah to the nation, he tells them about this cryptic figure called the servant of the Lord. And this servant will rule, he will bless, but he will suffer. And it is a major deal for for Matthew, who knows this, to say, the king is the servant. He is the one that was. And if you start reading these servant song passages, you will see descriptions of the person and work and life of Jesus, all the way up to Isaiah 53, which is the last one, which we did last week. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was. You know, bruised for our transgressions, like that passage is one of the servant songs, and Isaiah is saying we've been waiting for the servant of the Lord. There he is, number nine. The cross of Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of scriptures, and I'm Matthew twenty-six. It'll be up on a screen behind me. It is just Isaiah, literally Jesus, literally saying everything that happened in the story of the cross was a fulfillment of. All these predictions of what Jesus would do. Psalm 22, pictures of crucifixion. Isaiah 53, just tons of passages, pictures of the Passover lamb and the sacrifices and all this are fulfilled in Jesus. What's happening in the Bible is the Bible is saying God is telling a great story. He has a much better story for your life than you have for yourself. And in His story is the promise of one person who would come. And when you stand, like when you hit your thumb with a hammer and shout out His name, or when you declare and praise, I praise Jesus the Messiah. What you were saying, you're not just saying, here's this guy who lived in history. You were saying, God has promised to send one, and there he is. My hope is not in my effort. My hope is not in my religious energy. My hope is not in how well I do. My hope is in my faith and trust in the King. In Luke chapter 24, again, I'm referencing it. I should read it, but I'm out of time. Jesus literally then stands up and says, here's the deal. Post-resurrection, Jesus looks at his, his guys, his 12, and says, listen, all this had to happen to be fulfilled what the prophets had said. And now I'm here to tell you that all of the Old Testament was about me. The Bible points us to Jesus. When you read the Bible, if you're trying to find yourself, the only place you should find yourself is this. I stink, I'm awful, I need a Savior. That's it. If you read the Bible and say, well, I do this pretty well, you're missing the point. The Bible is to show us our need of Jesus. And every word in the Bible is an arrow pointing saying, there is our anointed one. There is our Messiah, praise be to God. Christ is the one. And so we're not here to offer you a system or a a set of beliefs. We're not here to offer you a better life. We are here to offer you the promised one and a great story of God's salvation through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And we're gonna tell you the same thing we say every Sunday is our band comes up here and we sing to Jesus, who is this anointed one, okay? We're gonna look at you and say, if you're a follower of Jesus, keep walking in faith and repentance. Fix your eyes on him. Follow him. As you worship and you trust and you hold on to Jesus in good and bad times, in, 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 in rejoicing and in suffering, as you hold on to Jesus and you hold on to the true Jesus revealed in Scripture, what's going to happen in, in your life is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to transform you into the image of Christ. You are going to move naturally toward the object of your worship. But if you were here today and you're not sure, or, or, or you're hearing this and you're like, I, I think I need this. I just want to offer you this morning, this offer. Look to Jesus. Trust in him. Turn from yourself today. Believe in Christ. He will save you. He will redeem you. He will rescue you. He is the one you need. You don't need a religion. You need a person. You need Jesus. And we offer him this morning to you. And so as we're singing here in just a minute, uh, we would love if you have questions, if you have Issues, or if you'd just like to pray with somebody about what this means, we will have people over here in this corner ready to meet you uh, during the next couple songs or at the end of the service. Don't feel awkward, just come over. I'll be over here at the end. We would love to have a conversation with anybody in this room about what it means to know Christ as your Redeemer, as your Messiah, as your Savior this morning. And so I'm going to pray, I'm going to get off the stage. We're all going to stand and lift our voices to our King. We're going to praise our Messiah, but don't leave here today if you don't know Christ is your Savior, is your Messiah, as your Redeemer. Don't leave your day without talking with one of us about that. So like I said, we'll have people over here. I'll be over here. Let's, let's have a chat. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We, we just thank you for the glorious story of Jesus and the beauty of the fact that he is our Messiah. He is the promised one. You laid out a, a glorious story in the Bible and uh, he is the answer to that story. So just help us today fix our eyes. Lift our chins. So a lot of us today are hurting and struggling and going through real hardship in life. Help us fix our eyes, eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. In your name I pray. Amen.